What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Now, I haven't just met you. I wouldn't go as far as calling you a cold-hearted bastard. No, of course not. But it wouldn't be a stretch to imagine. You think of women as disposable pleasures rather than meaningful pursuits. So as charming as you are, Mr. Bond, I will be keeping my eye on our government's money and off your perfectly formed hearts. That's Eva Green's Vesper Lynn with Daniel Craig in his 2006 debut outing as James Bond. This week, we revisit Casino Royale and Craig's perfectly formed character portrayal for its 15th anniversary. We'll also kick off our Jane Campion oeuvre with her first feature, 1989's Sweetie. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. So back in November 93, Josh, high school for us, budding cinephile that you were, you went and saw Jane Campion's much acclaimed The Piano in the theater, and you came out of that experience a fan of the film and of Campion. And imagine this, even in those days of Blockbuster and the neighborhood video store, Hmm. you were somehow able to cobble together a little Campion marathon of your own. You caught up with her two prior films. That was your introduction to what would be your life later, the film spotting marathons. Yeah, pretty much. I, You know, it was probably the Oscar attention. I mean, how would I have ended up seeking out the piano on my own, even though I was getting into films then? I'm sure all the Oscar attention brought it to more theaters. That's how I saw it. I have no idea how I tracked down those other movies. They certainly were not available at the Crestwood blockbuster. So it mm-hmm. could have been, you know, a couple years later where I got to them some other way. But yeah, happy okay. to happy to revisit all of those. Yeah, here we are 30 years later. And later in the show, we're going to kick off our eight film Campion retrospective. We are calling it an oeuvre review. It's our second following our Christopher Nolan oeuvre review. Last year, we'll kick it off with the director's 1989 debut, Sweetie. And what makes an oeuvre review different than a film spotting marathon, you might wonder? Well, our marathons usually kind of dart around throughout a filmmaker's career or a certain actor or actress's career, or we do a little bit of a survey of a region of cinema or style of cinema. And here we're going in order. We're watching them all, all eight, I believe, of Jane Campion's movies leading up to her new film, her first feature in over a decade, The Power of the Dog, which comes out in November and so far has earned great praise. So Campion, Sweetie, and more later in the show. But first... We haven't exactly been doing a James Bond oeuvre review, but for our film spotting family members on Patreon, we have been sampling the work of the Bond actors who preceded current 007 Daniel Craig. Now, before Craig leaves the part behind, we're revisiting his debut, Casino Royale. Your file shows no kills, Bond. But to become a double O, it takes two. How did he die? Your contact? Not well. You needn't worry. The second is... Yes. Considerably. When an installment in a long-running movie franchise gets things right, you tend to know it right away. Consider Casino Royale, the 21st James Bond film in the Eon Productions series, released in 2006 and starring, for the first time as Bond, Daniel Craig. 
The first thing we notice, the MGM and Columbia studio logos are in black and white. Intriguing, though not the most radical thing in the world. Then the movie itself starts, still monochrome. Starker, darker, recalling something more like 1965's The Spy Who Came In From The Cold than, oh, Pierce Brosnan's immediately preceding couple of pictures, to say nothing of Octopussy. In this first scene, Bond has the jump on a traitor, waiting for him in his office. The mole is played by a snide Malcolm Sinclair. In their tense exchange, we learn two surprising things. This Bond has just been promoted to 007. He's recently made his first kill, a brutal bathroom beating that's fed to us in snippets during the conversation. With a ruthlessness that cuts the scene short, Bond commits his second kill as Sinclair sits unarmed at his desk. Cut back to that bathroom where Bond spins around to deliver the lethal bullet to the first kill, and the screen narrows around him in the series' iconic gun barrel shot. Familiar, but also thrillingly different. In 2006, I was mostly indifferent about James Bond, Adam. Bond was a relic from my childhood, which I regarded with nostalgic affection. As a daily film reviewer, the run of Pierce Brosnan movies had begun to feel like professional obligations. Then Casino Royale arrived, and I was back on board. Still am, after this revisit, which was particularly interesting, coming on the heels of the other Bonds we've been watching and discussing on Patreon. Sean Connery's From Russia With Love, Roger Moore's The Spy Who Loved Me, Timothy Dalton's The Living Daylights, and Pierce Brosnan's Goldeneye. Compared to those entries, Adam, what would you say is the most distinguishing characteristic, not only of Craig's Bond, but of Casino Royale as a whole? Hmm. I don't even know where to start with that question. It's such a good one, but there are so many aspects to Craig's Bond I think we could start with. And actually, this movie was reviewed back on Film Spotting in 2006. Sam was our host then, co-host, Josh, not just our producer. So he sat across from me. And as I recall, we both were fans of this movie and both fans of Craig. I looked back at my notes from that conversation and I said, and this is just kind of funny talking about it 15 years later, I suggested that he is a more believable, interesting, complex bond, which we need in 2006. <laughs> so bringing bond into I guess what I was thinking of is the modern era, our our current time, 2006. Well, in 2021, I think that's as true as ever, if not more true. And you're right that everything about that opening sequence sets the table for setting up a new take on this character. I like the way you phrased it, familiar yet thrillingly different. This idea throughout, and we'll talk about a lot of these aspects, I think, there are Many ways that the movie decides to subvert our expectations of Bond, but it doesn't do it in a way where it seems like that's the glee of it, that that's the purpose or the intent of the movie. Let's have as much fun as we can with this relic. Let's thumb our nose at the series. No, it's not about thumbing your nose. It is about establishing this new character. And maybe we'll get back to that opening sequence a little bit more later. I want to talk about Craig, and answer your question as best I can. I think the most significant difference with Craig versus all the other Bonds is that the movie establishes him as, quote-unquote, a blunt instrument, which is apparently how Fleming originally 
thought of James Bond. Now, again, I'm not familiar with the source material, and it's not something that's informing at all my take on Bond or on Craig's Bond. But that that phrase, and I think M may even refer to him as that or very clearly suggest that's what he is, that is something different than that kind of very debonair, very smooth Bond we have always seen. There is something just a little grittier, a little more dangerous, a little scarier, a little more human or a lot more human about Craig's Bond than the other ones we've seen, including going back to when we talked about From Russia With Love and Connery is just really leaning into the movie star aspect, like Bond is this movie star figure and the movie knows it and it's kind of winking at us throughout. I'll give you a couple examples, and there are so many we could talk about that distinguish this Bond from others, but in that opening chase sequence, the big set piece that starts with them getting the phone, ellipsis, and just destroying that entire construction zone, right? There are a few moments that really stand out to me that clearly Martin Campbell, the director, wants us to pay attention to. And there are moments like the one where we see the guy he's chasing who's very fleet of foot and is very athletic and is able to jump from one perch atop some construction zone onto some other landing. And when he does it, it's perfect. Everything about it's perfect. And when Bond does it, he he stumbles and he he's barely able to hang on and has to pull himself up. When he jumps over a wall, unlike the other guy who just kind of like a cheetah jumps over it, he, of course, is a little bit more human. He's still James Bond. He's still an incredible physical specimen. That's the other real defining characteristic of Craig's Bond, obviously. But when he jumps over, he kind of comes down with a thud and then has to start running again, right? Or he just breaks right through the wall. And that's the other one. That's that's the best example to support my case, right? Where they're running through this building that's under construction and the guy he's chasing somehow manages to just kind of fly through an opening and the next thing we see is Bond chasing after him, and he just goes right through it. He doesn't have time to mess around. He's not as athletic or as graceful as that guy, and he's going to take the most direct line to his prey, to whoever he is chasing. That's what really defines this bond and that willingness to get really dirty and to use that physicality. And that brings me back actually to the opening real quick, the intercutting with his first kill where we've never seen Bond in the history of the franchise. We've never seen Bond, at least I haven't seen Bond, get that messy, killing someone. Mm -hmm. He really is, if not in, in total peril, he's definitely not in control most of the time. And when he says, when he says to the agent that he's caught that, you know, he says, how did he die? And he says, not well. Well, there's, there's nothing about that entire exchange that went well, it is not a smooth killing at all. And that also clues you in to the fact that there's something different about this bond. This isn't going to be the bond who's, you know, skiing on the slopes and using his gadgets necessarily to kill people from afar. He's going to have to get his hands dirty, which makes sense for this world, this 2006 world that this movie came out in versus kind of the the old school East versus West Cold War milieu of so many of these movies and i'll just throw in josh before i hear what you it sounds like really like about craig's bond 
that sequence that I was describing where he's chasing that guy. One of the things I didn't like back in 2006, even though I was a fan of the movie overall, one of the things I got completely wrong in 06, looking at my notes, was I didn't love some of the action scenes. And I didn't like that one in particular because it felt to me just like a lot of clutter, a lot of noise, a lot of destruction for the sake of destruction. I was kind of chalking it up to laziness on the part of the filmmakers. And then watching it again and watching it twice over the past couple of months as I have and understanding or feeling like I'm understanding Craig's Bond a little bit better, you realize that it's not about laziness at all. It's actually perfectly in keeping with Bond's character and all the things I've mentioned that when he is chasing that guy, it's going to be messy. <laughs> He's going to take down the entire house. When he goes to the embassy, it's going to be a thing. He's going to make a mess of it. There isn't a sequence here where he isn't kind of like a bull in a china shop. And that is who Craig's Bond is. Yeah, the, the filmmaking throughout is just so astute. And the director you mentioned, Martin Campbell, we talked about him on the Patreon show directing Goldeneye as well and just the level of filmmaking and the action scenes there. So so that's definitely a strong point for Casino Royale. But as far as Craig goes, you use the word prey, and that is so key because, you know, Bond has chased bad guys quite often throughout mm -hmm. the franchise. But, you know, mostly I feel like it's about Bond escaping, coming up with ingenious ways to get away. Not in this movie. In this movie, he is the pursuer. He's going after the prey. And I think that's almost the case in every sequence from the, the opening one where he we see him taking two guys out. He's an assassin. We don't think of James Bond as an assassin, even though that's absolutely what the character is. Mm -hmm. And Casino Royale rubs our noses in it right away. Yeah. Craig is by far the most physical Bond. And that could be in a number of ways. It could be the physicality you're talking about in the action scenes. It's also the physicality. I mean, how much beefcake do we get here? He comes out of the ocean in a skimpy suit twice, I think twice. And there are other scenes where the camera just kind of lingers on his body, him, yes. this bond as a physical specimen. So that is unique as well. You mentioned the relentlessness. You know what came to mind for me in that sequence for the construction site, but other ones as well. He's a lot like Robert Patrick's T-1000 in, in Terminator 2. The way he runs. The way I, he, I thought of it too, Josh. Yeah, and I the did. power mm -hmm. and just the idea, and you see this, the fear that um, you see in the eyes of the people he's after, that nothing is going to stop him. He's not going to stop That's until right. someone's seriously hurt. So I do think that Craig is, yes, it's a complete reinterpretation of the character but overall, I think that's in line with what the movie wants to do. What what really I think makes this Bond stand apart from the others is, is its insistence on taking place in a real, ugly, violent, dirty world. And yeah. I was looking back at my original review when I was writing for the Naperville Sun, and I don't know if this was me or listener, friend of the show, Wendy Fox Weber, who's my editor at the time, but the title of my review was Bond Begins, because this was a year after Batman Begins, and it struck me as working in a similar vein, where that Nolan Batman, a big part of it was what was thrilling about it was that it was giving us a Batman who could possibly exist in the real world. Mm -hmm. We touched on this during our Christopher Nolan overview, and you could imagine that the, the punches were just 
a little harder in that movie. And you could imagine someone like this Bruce Wayne actually developing into Batman. And I think that this Casino Royale is also trying to put us in a similar place. Here are these fantastic, iconic characters that we are used to seeing doing things that, you know, you could normally only imagine in the movies. But this time, you could maybe imagine them being around the corner, not yeah. in your life, but maybe this this other life that might just be out there in the shadows. And so I think the interpretation that Craig brings to Bond and the script writing that wants to emphasize that is completely in line with, with a movie that wants to be as close as Bond could get to the real world. Yeah. We did not know each other at all in 2006, but we shared a brain, it seems, because as I look back at my notes, I also talked about the way the movie seems like it owes a little something to Nolan's mm. Batman Begins from the prior summer, giving us this darker, more realistic take on a familiar character and giving us the backstory. And that is another element here, Josh, that I really liked about Casino Royale, just how it pulled off an origin story without that feeling like that's really ultimately all they were trying to do with the movie. You know, there are so many sequels we see now that decide to take that angle and show us that that origin and really the the fun and sometimes the angst of watching those movies is just in kind of watching the ways it fits the puzzle pieces together. That doesn't at all feel like what they're trying to do with Casino Royale. It's not about them giving you all of these clues to who Bond really is or telling you how he got the way he is. And yet it does accomplish that, right? In the sense that it it shows us a man who we talked about that opening sequence. I love everything about that opening scene. I love the way it intercuts that more violent showdown like we touched on his first kill. I like everything about his quips during that scene. The final line, yes, considerably and the way he delivers it. I like the black and white. I like the expressionistic angles of it that are something that I haven't seen in another Bond film. So it gives us Bond's origin, but only by giving us how he became a double O. It just gives us that little slice. Mm -hmm. We get to see the first two people he ever kills, which I don't think we ever knew or had any sense. Maybe they made it up for this film. I don't think we had any sense as Bond viewers that that's what distinguished you as a double O. So it's giving us something kind of interesting about his backstory. We feel like we're watching him be formed while at the same time, and this may take us in another direction, but at the same time, that love story, that romance with Vesper Lynn also sets up for the future Craig films, but in a way retroactively informs other Bond films that that feeling of distrust that he has mm -hmm. towards women, a really complex relationship he has with women in terms of obviously being attracted to them and drawn to them and able to attract them, but always kind of having on that armor that he has and that Vesper calls him out for. I think the way they handled the origin of Bond here is is interesting, especially when if you think about what's the last line of this movie, I think it's the only time in the film we hear him say, Bond, James Bond. And instead of that feeling like a nod, just sort of a, oh, great, we got it, fan service, he said the line we needed him to say, it actually feels like it's summing up what this movie has been leading up to, which is by the end of it, we see a more formed James Bond. We understand his identity as a character, and it makes sense for me in that final moment that he actually then states his name in that iconic way versus, again, it just being kind of a, a line that he tosses out like so many other Bonds do. 
Yeah, there's a thematic weight to putting it there that I like. I agree. And, you know, even, you know, other fan service moments like ordering the martini, they they kind of, there's a more playful approach to that where they tease us with it. And then we think, oh, is that what they're going to do with it? And then they come back with it again. They do, but can we touch on that real quick? Yeah. I mean, the way they handle the drinks here is another way they're having some fun with Bond and all of those tropes, right? right? Like the first drink he orders, I can't remember if we actually hear, I couldn't hear what he orders or what he's drinking, but it's definitely not. It's a totally different drink. A martini shaken, not stirred. And then later when he orders a drink during the poker scenes, he makes up a drink that he calls the Vesper. And then finally that moment where, okay, we're going to get it, the martini I think the bartender says something like shaken or stirred and Craig's line is something like, does it look like I care? Right. Yeah. And, and so it is in a way, a kind of dismissal of that line. We don't get the satisfaction of it. If you got the satisfaction of it from watching previous bond films, he's not going to deliver it the way that you've seen other bonds do it, but also it makes sense in that moment. Like this is the thing, we talked about GoldenEye in another episode, and I don't want to really get into it. But one of the things I found annoying about it is the way it seemed like they wanted to just give some gentle nods to the past. Like, oh, we'll have him driving an old Aston Martin so everyone watching can go, oh, it's like what Sean Connery drove. There are little moments like that sprinkled throughout GoldenEye that just seem like kind of fan service in the simplest way. And that this movie had, I guess, the courage to take one of those iconic lines and not give us that satisfaction, but also have it tied to the character. Like the line he delivers in that moment is absolutely what that character would say. And I feel like they, they found ways to either integrate those tropes, those motifs in a way that made more sense for the character and didn't feel shoehorned in, or they found ways to not shoehorn them in, but that allowed them to challenge your expectations. Yeah, when he says that about the martini, it's because he's he's focused on something else at the minute. It, it goes back exactly. to being a blunt instrument. So it. so it fits there. And it's yeah, it's some tricky, you know, tricky dialogue we get. I think this screenplay is tricky in a lot of ways. And I want to return to what you were saying about his relationship with women. So the screenplay written by Neil Purvis, Robert Wade, and Paul Haggis. I appreciated what it was doing. I remember even the first time in 06 how it was admitting that, yes, this is a character who has historically kind of hated women, if you look Mm -hmm. at it, yeah, if you really kind of peel it back. And that was here this time, but I also wondered if they were pulling off this really convenient, elaborate trick that gives Bond moving forward a license to hate women. And that's because, you know, he's betrayed. So it's something that was done to him that made him have this relationship. Then here's the trick they pull, but Mm -hmm. she was blackmailed into it. So it's not her fault. It's not Vesper Lynn's fault that he now has this, you know, psychological relational dysfunction. And so we come out of Casino Royale in this place that I don't know we should necessarily be, which is like, okay, I understand why Bond hates women. <laughs> and and it's it's definitely more psychologically complex. Yes. But it also, you talked about it retrofitting all those other films. It also, in a way, reaches back and lets them off the hook in a way that I don't know if I'm entirely comfortable with. So so it's it was just more I had more 
of a conflict, more conflicted feelings about that whole storyline, as much as I admire all the hoops they're jumping through and the deafness with which they do it, than I did in 06. Yeah, I guess I can't have it both ways if I'm going to say that that's one of the strengths of the origin story element is that it, in a way does retroactively inform our viewing of other Bond films. I would say I still think there's enough of a split and there was so much work being done as we've touched on in great detail to distance itself or to create this new type of Bond that I didn't feel so much, Josh, that it was maybe trying to let those old dinosaurs off the hook. I think the trick of it, though, is what you said. It's that Bond here is very clearly betrayed. And so it's It's a cause and effect where then you go, oh, well, then that explains his mistreatment of women or we should allow that because look at how hurt he was. But since it wasn't her choice, what that does is put Bond in a complex situation where he is clearly furious and he will always be angry with her for how he got taken along for the ride. I think that might drive it more than just about anything, but it doesn't change the fact that he was betrayed. And so what I mean is... That's the complexity. The complexity is that his whole life, he will always know that that woman didn't mean to betray him, if you will. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't change the fact that it feels the same way. Sure. It feels the same way no matter what their intentions were. So you will always have an inherent mistrust, a little bit of a disdain. And I I think that that's, that's more layered and nuanced than obviously anything we get in any previous Bond installment. And there are other touches along those lines that are worth talking about. You mentioned one of them. It's really noticeable that he's the eye candy here. (laughs) More than any of the women, him walking out of the water, not Ursula Andress, not Halle Berry, him walking out of the water in the bathing suit Mm -hmm. and us gazing at him is saying, yep, this is a new world. This is a new bond. We're going to look at his his body and we're going to take that in. And maybe that's not what the average Bond moviegoer was really expecting when they went to Casino Royale. I like that. I love the fact that when he uses Demetrius's wife to get information, he doesn't even sleep with her. Josh, remember, he orders the room service and he bolts for Miami. Yeah, it's the Again. equivalent of um, of not caring how the martini is made, because that wasn't it, the point right? of that moment. Right. That wasn't the point. He is just using her. She's a means to an end. The end is to thwart whatever this plot is. And he's got to get to Miami right away. Any other Bond film, almost any other, maybe not the Dalton Bond films, but almost any other would have done a quick fade out where it would have allowed us the the knowledge of thinking that, oh, well, of course. Bond fit in a little tryst with her first, mm-hmm. but but then he still got to Miami and stopped the bad guys, right. right? No, this movie says this Bond would not do that. He has a singular focus, and no matter how much he as a man actually may want to sleep with that woman, he's not going to have any distractions. He's going to get with her. And then I'll just say, too, about Vesper Lynn. I was wrong about that as well back in 2006. Again, overall, I liked the movie, but when I listed some things about the movie that didn't really work for me. I mentioned that I didn't like the first action sequence. Now I really dig it. I mentioned that the card playing wasn't that interesting. Nope. Really dig all the card playing now. They both break times it up, I've they break it up it. nicely. I I, that, I think they do. That kind of held me up the first time too, but watching it this time, they really do find us, give us moments yes. of respite from it. 
They do. And not only do they find moments of respite and give us some action and intrigue in between, but I just think I maybe wasn't clued in enough to what Bond says, what great poker players say, you're playing the man across from you, you're not playing, you know, the cards. And I, I think there's there's a lot going on between those two men, Mads Mikkelsen's Le Chiffre, that I find pretty interesting, as well as some of the periphery stuff with Eva Green. And then I also said that not all of the Vesper scenes totally work that maybe they push for a little emotional seriousness that this movie couldn't quite pull off, or maybe I just didn't want to see in a James Bond movie. I didn't necessarily buy how sudden she seems to fall for him, but of course, that's that's kind of the trick of this movie as well. Now watching it, I do get it. And in fact, when you watch it again and when you know what's coming, it so informs those interactions between her and Bond when he is recovering from his injuries and she is coming on to him and she is basically saying, okay, I'm yours now. Yeah. And in the moment you maybe don't quite believe it, but then when you see how she reacts to certain moments and you see kind of her despair, she Vesper Lynn sells that to James Bond in the moment as, as something that's happening between them. That's real, or there's some other pain that she is conjuring. But of course we know having seen the movie that, that she is doing a bit of a performance and what she's really crying about, what she's really upset about is the fact that she is going to further betray him. So I like, I like those layers to it as well, Josh. And also just that whole sequence with them where they meet. Oh, it's great. I mean, talk about good screenwriting and the dialogue. Screenwriting, yeah. Great acting. And it has to be the longest single conversation. I would say just single conversation. Stop there. But certainly single conversation of any substance, any Bond I've seen have with any of his so-called Bond girls or Bond women. No one talks to Bond the way she does. By the cut of his suit, you went to Oxford or wherever. Naturally think human beings dressed like that. But you were it with such disdain. My guess is you didn't come from money and your school friends never let you forget it. Which means you were at that school by the grace of someone else's charity, hence the chip on your shoulder. And since your first thought about me ran to orphan, that's what I'd say you are. Well, you are. <laughs> I like this back thing. Even that line later where she says, I sized you up the moment we met. It's a great line because she's referring literally to, I know your jacket size. I picked it out perfectly. But of course, she knew exactly who he was the moment she met him. And that's kind of Bond's trick with everyone he meets, right? They even talk about that a little bit. But you believe it. With her, you believe it with Eva Green's portrayal of Vesper Lynn. Well, and it's it's a great deconstruction or rethinking, I should say, because as you said, this isn't just like trying to take down the previous Bond movies, but it's a rethinking of all those exchanges with the Bond girls that are just these kind of surface level double entendres. And here they kind of dance around the possibility of that. But what do they do? They do what this bond has been doing all throughout they mostly get down to business <laughs> like what yep. they need to achieve on their mission acknowledging the electricity in the air that might be between them yeah absolutely and we talked about some of the ways the movie surprises us and all of the ways that this bond feels so different what's the car we see him pull up in the first oh, time yeah. the movie doesn't <laughs> movie doesn't comment on it or dwell on no. it. I'm pretty sure he's driving a Ford. I, I think know? it might be we all watching it. All of us yeah. were like, what is he driving? But he's it, driving it a Ford. It's a rental car. edge where you're like, 
uh, did Ford like pay a ton and they just picked the wrong car or because you're right, it doesn't pay it doesn't really underline it it just kind of plays it as if it were it does a bmw or something or a jaguar and no i believe it might be a ford (laughs) now he does at one point order a bollinger you know champagne and i think the two previous bond movies we've talked about for our patreon members goldeneye and the living daylights i think in both bond orders bollinger so that felt like a little bit of a safe nod to past james bond films But there's another fun moment that surprises us, Josh, in the car that helps show us the relationship and the banter these two characters have, where doesn't he say that her alias is Stephanie Broadchest? Uh, (laughs) Something like like that, yeah. Yeah, and she's like, no, it isn't. Come on, and tries to grab it from him, and he won't show her. And that's kind of a throwaway line, except it is funny. I think it does, as I said, reinforce the chemistry between them. But also, we're so used to that. We're so used to hearing the name of the female villain or whoever sure. it is, and it's something like Zinnia on a top from from Goldeneye. And here, it's it's a joke. It's a wink. It's a wink at the audience that we're going to allow for the fact that almost every James Bond film has one of these absurdly named, sexual-inspired names for women that's going to sort of reduce them to objects. And this movie just does it a different way. It does it in a way that actually makes sense for these two characters in the moment. Yeah, every step of the way, it manages to nod to the franchise it's a a part of in its own manner without completely deflating what came before. It's, It's really a deft piece of work when you consider all the weight that it had on it as the new Bond for a new era. It's really impressive how it pulls that off. Casino Royale is available to rent on most platforms. If you've seen it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. And if it's possible you haven't seen it in 15 years or so, like I hadn't, do yourself a favor. Get ready for No Time to Die. Go ahead. Revisit Casino Royale. Massacre Theater is up next. I don't know. It's been a crazy week, Adam. Have we chosen a scene yet? (laughs) We'll see what happens. Okay, good. I'll hand you a script. (laughs) Then my goal with our Jane Campion overview is to turn you, Adam, and all of Film Spotty Nation into Campion superfans. The project begins next with Sweetie. Stay with us. She will find a buried saw. She will set my hands on fire. Hands on fire over again. Her to me and me to them. And if the day crash a plane but not from the air not so dramatic i, I would have run a jet off the taxiway breached real war and start fire well how big a plane well that part is a little dramatic ladies and gentlemen your next james bond in my dreams robert pattinson <laughs> maybe possibly that was pattinson not as bond of course but as neil in last year's Tenet, with Daniel Craig retiring from the Bond series after the upcoming No Time to Die. Our current film spotting poll question asks you, who should be 
the next Bond. In addition to Pattinson, the options we gave you are the following age-appropriate Brits. Josh, do the honors. We've got Riz Ahmed, John Boyega, Michael Fassbender, Tom Hardy, Daniel Kaluuya, Dev Patel, and you can vote other if someone else comes to mind. Other right now doing fairly well. Hmm. I think in maybe second or third place. Wow. And that's rare for a film spotting poll that tells you just how deeply flawed this <laughs> film spotting poll question is. They all are. But when other is that high, that means maybe you overlook someone you shouldn't have. I think that person might be Idris Elba, but we will get to that feedback and those results next week on the show. Vote now and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. Also next week, we'll get to the second film in our Jane Campion Oeuvre Review 1990s, An Angel at My Table. It's a biopic about New Zealand writer Janet Frame. It's based on her autobiographical writing. If you are curious about our full Oeuvre Review lineup, including where you can watch the films, where you can follow along with our series, that's all at filmspotting.net slash campion. Next week here on Film Spotting, Josh, on-air production meeting, are we in are we going to talk about Titan from director Julia Ducourneau? I think her debut had to be a Golden Brick finalist for us. Oh, no. It, no? Well, it couldn't have been because did you did you end up seeing it? I forget. Did you? Oh, yeah. Oh, you did oh, see yeah. Raw. Okay. Oh, yeah. And I, I didn't love it as much as you did, but I thought it was in Golden Brick contention. I definitely appreciated Ducourneau as a first-time filmmaker, the ambition of it, including her ambition to really gross us out. <laughs> and apparently, she maybe is taking it to another level with Titan. That's what it sounds like. Winner, yeah, of the Palm d'Or earlier this year at Cannes. A surprise winner and a movie that surprised some audience members by actually making them pass out during the film's reportedly quite grisly early section. Josh, are you, are you ready Titan? I mean, I thought I was having seen and loved Raw made my top 10 list. But yeah, from what I've been hearing, um, this does raise things up a few notches. So we'll find out if I can take it. It's either that or we could also talk about the equally grisly Dear Evan Hansen. Pick your poison, Josh. Yeah, I mean, I I passed out from the trailer for Dear Evan Hansen. So I, I, I think I'm going to go with Titan. I think that's probably a good choice, though, in fairness. Neither of us have seen Dear Evan Hansen yet. And just for the record, confirmed, 2017, Raw, one of our five finalists for the film spotting Golden Brick, the coveted Golden Brick Award we give out to kind of our overlooked or underseen movie of the year by a new or emerging filmmaker. It did lose to Columbus. Tough competition, but I don't think either of us quite regret that choice as much as you may love Ducourneau's Raw. We'll see how you feel about Titan. We'll see how we both feel after we watch it, while we watch it. For next week, right now, we're putting it on the schedule, Josh. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's something different. It's a one-off show. They're having a conversation about Catherine Bigelow's Strange Days. They felt this was the true best pairing with Reminiscence. Uh, they ended up doing Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, but Strange Days was unable to be accessed, hard to track down, not available for digital rental. 
that has kind of become the topic of this one-off show that they're doing. They're going to talk about strangely hard to find titles, even in this digital era. So that's Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky, your hosts, having that conversation. Also, can we say congrats to Next Picture Show host and producer? Genevieve Kosky, her partner, Stephen, they got married over the weekend. Uh, Yes, we absolutely should. Congratulations to both of them. The Next Picture Show is hosted by Genevieve, Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and new episodes post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. More info at nextpictureshow.net. And I think they should post the registry there. It's not too late. (laughs) Why not? You could always always use a few extra pots and pans. Listeners can contribute there. One way you can send us gifts, you can support the show, is by joining our film spotting family over on Patreon. For $5 a month, you get a bunch of benefits, including monthly bonus episodes. And this month, you really got a two-for-one. We talked about both 1987's The Living Daylights and 1995's GoldenEye. So we got ourselves ready for that Casino Royale conversation by doing a mini Bond marathon our Patreon members were treated to, I'm going to say treated to, Josh, conversations, very fun, lively, spirited conversations about From Russia With Love, Connery, The Spy Who Loved Me, Roger Moore, and then we got to those debuts, Timothy Dalton's and Pierce Brosnan's. Yeah, those last two in one show. So did we create a separate tier for that on Patreon that, you know, family members had to had to pay a little extra or we just gave this in the regular tier, huh? Yeah, regular tier. Wow. That's just, that's just how we are. We're we're magnanimous <laughs> that way. So you have that to look forward to. And here's the thing. If you're not a member now and you're saying, well, great, I may get other bonus shows like that, but what about these bonus shows? Did I just miss them? No. Once you become a member, the entire back catalog is completely available to you. You also have access to our monthly trivia spotting events with our film spotting quiz master, Thomas Todd always a good time this was last friday trivia spotting 14 trivia spotting xiv josh let's, mm-hmm. let's make it seem a little grander sounds much really more is. important doesn't it we had special returning captains nick allen from RogerEver.com, mariah gates chris Clemick, and we had a couple first-time captains katie rife from the av club and sohail reza yazdi who is a film writer and a film programmer, works at Columbia University. And it was the first time Sohail and I had actually spoken to each other since he was a listener of my radio show back at the University of Iowa when I was a grad student and he was in high school. Yeah, I was going to so, say, if I heard correctly, he, he used to listen as a seven-year-old. Is that is that how that went? Well, <laughs> not quite, but it, it wasn't lost on me that Sohail was younger then than my daughter Sophie is now as she was sitting next to me playing trivia spotting. So the fact that now I have a daughter older than he was back when I started the show that was the precursor to this show, it it definitely made me feel pretty old pretty quick. We're old, Adam. We are old. We are. We're going to have to embrace it because we have no choice. The winning team was the Hills Have Eyes of Tammy Faye. (laughs) Sam Van Hallgren (laughs) takes... Two months off from trivia spotting, comes back with a vengeance mm. and wins for the first time. So I'm not good at math. Like like Brosnan's Bond, I'm not I'm not good with numbers, but I have you 
winning a trivia spotting. Yes, I think I that Sam. I think that did happen. Sam winning a trivia spotting. How how many have I won? I mean, we're still playing, so clearly the only reason we're still playing is because you haven't won yet. Good point. It will stop as soon as <laughs> I win. I'm gonna go out. I'm gonna go out a champion. <laughs> Sam's team was awesome. Andre Cadeau, Wendy Fox Weber, Linda Ozaro, Ross Bratton, a two-time winner. I think Wendy's now a four-time winner. She's getting good draws here with the captains, you know? Well, or is she the lucky charm? I, let no, me just point out, I have not yet been able to play with Wendy. My former my former editor, right. 14 of these things. I, yeah. I've got to lodge a complaint with our quiz master about yeah, that. Yeah, and I think Wendy's been on my team twice, so she's probably lodging a complaint for that. <laughs> the MVP, Sam says, was Paul Nadeau. He is a very good player every time I've had Paul on my team. Jason Montgomery, very good player. They're all very good players, but Jason's been a regular on a couple Adam captain teams where we've come very close. And then Stephen Melbourne, who sent us a really nice note. Thank you for that, Stephen. And I guess I will just have to take away that I had I had two victories. Well, one you have to give me. One I don't know if you'll give me. I did win for the first time the captain versus captain lightning round showdown. I didn't think it would come down to me, you, and then ultimately me and Nick Allen in the category of sports movies. Pretty fun game. Thomas Todd would give us a movie. You'd just have to say what sport. Yeah. That was good. That was fun. Was it, was about. Wasn't Sam? And I did win it. You did. Wasn't Sam in that final round too? Or did I know it came down to you and Nick, but yeah. I thought at no. one point he was in there. But maybe. maybe anyway, but, it, the point of all this, we, yeah. we need to I need to back up, is that you won it. I realize what we're trying to yeah. do here. So, yeah, that's okay. It. And, okay. And sorry to distract I wanna, us. I want to get a little jab in at Sam because you know, I, I don't even get to relish my victory. I I pulled it out on a movie I've never even heard of. Didn't know it existed. The movie was called Stick It. And I'm thinking about it and I'm getting confused because in my head, I hear Stick It. I think about Stick. It makes me think of a wicket, but I couldn't actually come up with the word wicket because if I had, I would have thought of cricket. And I might've then said cricket. That's where my head went. Wow. But I couldn't, I couldn't place it. And then at the last minute, the very last minute, I'm like, oh, yeah, like stick the landing. Mm -hmm. I said gymnastics and I was right. And I'm kind of patting myself on the back. I say, man, how did I how did I pull that off? And Sam chimes in and says, well, I don't know. The movie was called Stick It. <laughs> so you realized it was gymnastics? Yeah, I mean. Like, oh, okay. I, I, Thanks. Yeah, it wasn't like Sher proud. Sherlock work there, but it got you the win. No. So congratulations. It did get me the win. Third place finish overall. Now, here's the other victory. We'll see if you give it to me. I said on last week's show that I was really proud of my team name. Now, other than maybe adding an extra 15 minutes to the show because Thomas had to say the full yeah, team name yeah. every time he referenced it, how do you think I did? I think it was fine, as okay. as I said, and as as the aforementioned Wendy Fox Weber, who, as I pointed out, is an editor, said, Adam needs an editor. It was a little Ouch. long. A little long, but clever. Um, good job. Good job. Well, you know what? Maybe this will make Wendy feel better. When I was actually driving in my car last week and this came to me in traffic, mm -hmm. the title was just Licorice Pizza Pie. That's PTA More. And then it was the day of trivia spotting where I realized, no, no, I'm, 
I'm going all in. If you're going to go with the song reference, you got to go with the whole line. So, in fact, our team name was When the Moon Hits Your Eye Like a Licorice Pizza Pie. That's P-T-A More. So, wait a minute. I'm still proud of it. Sorry. Are you telling me on second thought you decided to make something longer and more complicated? That's exactly right. I can't believe that. (laughs) I know. You're shocked. (laughs) Well... If you want to participate in all of these hijinks, we'd love to have you. Our next trivia spotting is October the 8th, another Friday night, 7 p.m. Central Time, and tickets will be on sale soon. In fact, by the time you hear this, they they may even be on sale. Patreon.com slash film spotting is where you sign up. All right, let's get to something even sillier than trivia spotting. It is Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks ago, Adam and I massacred this scene. You disapprove of me. It's not personal. It feels personal when you chat up every other guy at the game except me. When you stay late for a drink with JT but never... Have you visited his Oscar? I think it's bolted on the hood of his car. It's noticeable. When you go out of your way to demonstrate that you have no interest in me. You did the same thing to Dean. These guys want to play cards with me, not you. Be that as it may. You know who the biggest winner in this game is? It's you. You know who the second biggest winner is? Look. It's you. That was Michael Sarah and Jessica Chastain in 2017's Molly's Game. Still haven't seen it. Even though you love it, Adam, I don't know how yeah. I managed to even perform. It was written and directed by Aaron Sorkin based on Molly Bloom's autobiography. Along with that massacre, we reviewed Paul Schrader's The Card Counter, and we had our World of Wong Kar Wai Marathon Awards. So why that scene from Molly's Game? Well, Darwin M. says the main tie-in is, of course, The Card Counter, two films about poker players with a past that stings and lingers on. Another tie-in, Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain leads of both films, respectively, are currently co-leading the remake of Bergman's Scenes from a Marriage on HBO Max. How about another? Ty Sheridan and Chastain also co-starred in the disastrous and borderline disrespectful X-Men film Dark Phoenix Shudders, Darwin adds. <laughs> All right. Here's Jim Polini in Bethpage, New York. One more Massacre Theater connection, albeit a ham-fisted one, comes to mind. Both Sorkin and Schrader wrote critically acclaimed screenplays that explored, among other subjects, expressions of toxic masculinity. One screenplay was for a film about a socially awkward outsider who responds to an unrequited romantic infatuation with a dangerous, outsized display of revenge. The other screenplay was for Taxi Driver. We see what you did there, Jim. And Jim, of course, gave us all sorts of feedback last week, connections that allowed us to give some hints to listeners. Those hints did result in more entries. Thank you, Jim, for that. And thank you for that addition. We now have Josh reach into the eh, medium sized film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Sandy L in Portland. Congratulations, Sandy. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. We move on to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, one that I had to ask you to look up the reason why we were performing this scene this week. I mean, it is a choice of our producer, Sam Van Halgren, as it usually is. I didn't really know what the tie-in is. You educated me. We will see if our listeners will have an easier time figuring out what scene we're doing and why we're doing it. Yeah, Sam has his reason. 
Um, I, I'm sure I'm sure listeners will come up with more reasons. They'll find them. They always do. Now, this is a scene where I am not playing the woman, despite the fact that that is my standard role in Massacre Theater. But I think that's because you're typecasting me as the most boring man. On the <laughs> well, I, as we were watching this, uh, doing our research, I should say, doing our research. Yeah. Um, yeah, I noticed he, this guy's barely trying in this scene. <laughs> he's, he's like, <laughs> so if you want to go get a drink or something, I yeah. think, I think we'll, it'll play just as well. Okay. You're going to start it off. You're doing the heavy lifting. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? Yes. And action. What is it about the wrong kind of man? In grade school, it was guys with earrings. In college, motorcycles, leather jackets. Now, black rubber. Try firemen. Less to take off. I don't mind the work. Pity I can't see behind the mask. We all wear masks. My life's an open book. You read it. I don't blend in at a family picnic. Oh, we could give it a try. I'll bring the wine. You bring your scarred psyche. And see. see. Sorry, I just had to get some energy back in me. Hey, it took you a while. It was like you were slowly dying as Uh the scene went on. You had a little bit too much fire at the start. But by the the end, when you realized what you were involved in, you were just kind of like kill me now. And I think that's, I think that's accurate to how this scene plays in real life. Maybe I am going to say, Josh, I'm a little disappointed. I mean, that last line, there's a real, Oh, that you didn't, you didn't really go for it. See, I didn't do enough research. I just watched it too quickly. I thought I nailed black rubber. Can you give me black rubber? I'll give you black rubber. (laughs) Okay. Were you, were you Josh? (laughs) Tell me this, tell our listeners. I want to know what Debbie's into. Were you ever the wrong kind of man? Earring, motorcycle, leather jacket, black rubber, anything? I think I was the wrong kind of man because I listened to REM. And at, wow. at our high school, was, at our high school, Debbie Adam, high school? at our high school, real red flag. Watch out for Josh. Rebel. <laughs> if you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday. October 4th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. I'm coming in. Surprise! What are you doing here? You know you're not allowed. You broke the bloody window. I'm really mad at you. It wouldn't open, Kay. It was really stiff. Of course it was. It was locked. Yeah, well, I couldn't get it to open. That's from Sweetie, the 1989 feature debut of director Jane Campion. A couple of weeks ago, Adam, we wrapped up a marathon dedicated to the films of Hong Kong director Wong Kar Wai. Now we turn our attention to Campion, whose career got its start right about the same time as Wong's. In fact, Wong's first feature, As Tears Go By, we discussed it, and Campion, Sweetie, both played the 89 Cannes Film Festival, and I didn't realize that, but I've got to say, I thought of As Tears Go By while watching Sweetie. Maybe that's something we can discuss. Really? Yeah. The Wong Marathon was devoted to the titles in the new Criterion Collection box set, The World of Wong Kar Wai, seven of Wong's films loosely related by setting, theme, and a cast and crew. This Campion series, as we've mentioned, is a retrospective of her entire feature film output from 89 Sweetie through 2009's Bright Star 
And all of this is in anticipation of the November release of her new feature, The Power of the Dog. Let's get to Sweetie. The movie is about Kay, played by Karen Colston, a nervous and superstitious woman in her 20s. Her life is turned upside down when her sister Dawn, a.k.a. Sweetie, played by Genevieve Lemon, shows up and, let's say, reinserts herself back in Kay's life. Now, this film is available currently on the Criterion channel, and they have a series they do called Three Reasons. Short montages, kind of music videos, one to two minutes. They may be available on the Criterion channel. They are definitely available on YouTube, where they give you three reasons to care about this movie or why this movie is substantial. Again, it's all just images from the movie put to music, and they put those three reasons in text on the screen. And their three reasons for Sweetie, Josh, are daring directorial debut, nobody chooses their family, and the storm that is Sweetie. Do you agree with all of those reasons? And if you had to pick one, is there one of those three for you that really makes Sweetie a standout? Well, Daring directorial debut is why I thought of as Tears Go By. And, and obviously, because we just recently watched it. But here are films. I knew they were of pretty much the same era. And I thought, you know, how similar they were in terms of just right out of the gate, bold, unique visions. Like these are whatever you make of the film at the end of the day, you cannot deny that it's coming from a particular point of view and pure yeah. cinematic talent. Um, so what was the second one? The family, nobody chooses their family. Nobody chooses their family. I mean, you know, to call this a dysfunctional family drama, I don't think is doing service to the level of um, darkness that's, underneath this movie, even though it may not on the surface look that way. Um, but yes, completely recognize that. I think it's very interesting. Uh, the performance of Dawn gets back to that third element, I think. The performance as Dawn by Genevieve Lemon, which I think is quite remarkable in something that um, is obviously showy. Um, this is someone that uh, uh, Kay herself describes, I believe, as a bit mental. And so... Mental health is clearly at play here. Um, there's, you know, she will pretend to be a dog at times to get her own way and, and mm -hmm. literally bite her family members. So there are serious uh, challenges going on here. But I think the performance manages to make her not just um, kind of a, a freak in any way, but someone who is damaged, potentially also been damaged by her family. This goes back to the darkness that's circling on the outside of this movie. I don't know. This is just such a campion movie from the start, even if it, and we could say something maybe similar of as tears go by is not like quite as fully formed or coherent as further pictures we will get to, but in its uh, consideration of, of, particularly anxiety, um, I think, and how family relationships feed into that, um, it, it just seems very much something that is pure campion. Um, and yeah, I think those three reasons are good, are good guidelines to give to encourage someone to check this out. Yeah, that point in particular about Sweetie and her character being one that has some depth to it, despite the fact that i mean let's say it she's she's annoying she's a burden you oh yeah see you see how she is in that house the 
the storm that she is, as the three reasons say, the way she comes in and just turns everything upside down and makes everything about her and really uproots the lives of Kay and Louie, even though they were having their own problems to begin with and were probably, you know, doomed anyway. And of course, when I say doomed anyway, now I sound kind of like Kay and the way she views the world as if all of this is is fated somehow. But the fact that she is a character who watching you, you're sort of glad that you have the distance of the screen between you, that you aren't Kay, that she hasn't <laughs> yeah. taken over. She hasn't taken over your house and and kind of ruined your life. And yet the movie finds ways and that performance finds ways to make her endearing enough, certainly enough that you feel some some empathy for her. Mm-hmm. I think you touched on it, which is realizing that, you know, Kay isn't exactly quote unquote normal either. And neither are her parents. Yeah. And maybe, you know, chicken or the egg, maybe sweetie caused that, or maybe they they caused sweetie to be mm. the way she is. But the fact that I found myself at different points still being really grateful that I didn't have to interact with someone like sweetie in my daily life, I I saw the humanity in her. I saw her as a character who I wished I wish could get her act together, not because of the unhappiness she was causing other people, but because of her own unhappiness. Yeah. So that, that makes well, her something different than just kind of a monster, even though that kind of is the role she plays in this film. For sure. And I think the litmus test point for that, uh, I'll be interested to see if you experienced it this way. Um, about halfway through the film, this is after their father shows up. Um, at Most of the action takes place at the house that she shares with Lou, and at some point her father shows up, played by John Darling, um, and the three of them decide they're going to go off and look for their mother, who has left the father at this point, mm-hmm. but they know they can't take Sweetie. Um, so they concoct this plan to basically jump in the car, distract her with a phone call, and take off so she won't realize that they're ditching yeah. her. And I yeah. think you're, you're going to feel a couple of things in that scene. You're going to feel pure relief. I mean, I felt some relief for them, yeah, right? They're, for sure. They're getting a break. They're getting to yep. go, go search out the mother and kind of bring her back in the fold because she's left. The performance works, I think, because I also felt a tinge of, oh, no, like she can't be alone. No, like she, that's, that's she, it. Right? She's going to like, mm-hmm. this is not good for her. And I think this this gets to the, the point, your chicken and egg thing is great because, um, you know, these parents, if you had a child who's suffering from some sort of mental illness, these may have been the worst parents to have because the father, John Darling, seems oblivious and really believes she could be this professional entertainer, you know, that they did these routines when she was little. Um, and he still thinks and has filled her head with this dream that she could be an entertainer of some mm-hmm. sort. The mother, played by Dorothy Barry, she just kind of pretends this is all above her pay grade. You know, this is like, yeah. I, I can't I can't help with any of this. I think it's kind of crazy, but, you know, it's what am I going to do? What? chance does a child or young woman who's facing some sort of serious mental illness have in a in a situation like that and there are also hints you know adam i think we're going to find like campion and sexuality is a really challenging area because it's um it's something in her movies that is dangerous but alluring it's something that's um, you know, it, it can be the answer to life's mysteries, but it can also be no big deal. Like, why are people making a big deal about this? They're very frank films. 
And it's also something that's that's dangerous and damaging. And there are hints around the edge of this movie, I read at least, of possible sexual abuse. Um, when Sweetie was young, it's, it's just kind of, you know, there are certain scenes or references that that's how I read it. And so that's another element where I think does build up empathy for Sweetie, to go back to your point, where you realize that this is a woman who is a storm and I can't imagine living with her in my life either, but also is in need of help that she has just not gotten. Now, mm-hmm. I want to say, like, I think we've made, or I have probably made this sound really, really dark. <laughs> and and I think it is. But there is, you know, Campion brings an incredible amount of, I don't know, what what would you call it? It's, it's um, I guess it's kind of wit, but it's, it's never, for me, it never crossed over into something that was like calculated whimsy or calculated mm-hmm. quirkiness. Um, but there, th- she brings a light touch and some humor to it so that it's maybe not as oppressive or as disturbing as I'm making it sound. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's totally fair. And yet, as we talk about that darkness that is there, that, that makes me think about the way I would describe this movie to somebody if they just ask me for kind of a one sentence description, not of what the movie's about, but how it's about it. And I know that a listener tweeted something at us about finally watching this film and really appreciating it. And I think they made a reference to one of these movies. I apologize to that listener. I don't have it in front of me, so I don't remember exactly what they said. But watching this movie, I was struck by how much it felt to me like David Lynch by way of Vim Vendors. And I think that's because I had Paris, Texas in my head. We mm. watched it fairly recently, discussed it in a bonus show for our listeners. Everything about that sequence going way out into the desert oh, with the jackaroos with the jackaroos <laughs> yeah. and, and and the dancing and even the lighting during that sequence reminded me so much of that great film paris texas but then who knew and so this is what i want you to fill me in on a little bit you said there's so much here that is jane campion well as you know i haven't seen as many of her films as you have i definitely have not studied them as closely as you have i haven't reviewed any of them so this is really going to be a learning experience for me in this series. And watching the first film, of course, it does set that foundation. So I'm curious, is that something I should get used to seeing or expect to see in later Campion films? That that kind of sense of almost supernatural dread that permeates this film? Again, all the all the talk about superstition and fate and believing that she is sort of doomed and the the notion of this tree that that could have these terrible roots and get under the house everything about those sequences and the way they're filmed actually legitimately did make me think of david lynch's eraser head and not in a way where i felt like campion was was aping lynch's style but it it gave me that that same feeling of dread i had watching that movie this idea that there are these hidden things in the world that you simply cannot escape or avoid other forces at work, though maybe there are other forces this movie perhaps suggests, Josh, that they're forces that aren't really there, but if they're there in your mind and if you let them run your life, if you let them dominate your thoughts, then they can be this terribly dark 
force in your life. Yeah, I think the the eraser head comparison is very apt because what this revisit for me, it struck me how much this is really about Kay's state of distress. Mm-hmm. Sweetie dominates. She doesn't show up, you know, as we mentioned until later in the film. And once she's there, she kind of dominates the narrative. That's the sort of character she is. But this is really Kay's story. And I think of that line she says, there's this one segment where um, she's trying to do meditation, participate in a meditation class. And she just keeps coming up to the teacher and saying, this isn't working for me. And here's some of the humor, right? You'd have to see the scene, but it's very funny. He just says the same thing every time. I forget what it is. Something like, close your eyes, you know, accept the quiet, something like that. Yes. Good. Just gently close the eyes. Gently close the eyes. Well, it won't work. I won't feel any quiet. And you said this earlier, Adam, like Kay has her own challenges, her Mm -hmm. own things she's struggling with. And it's a deep-seated anxiety. It's all related, we feel, mostly related at least to her family. But the first time we see her, she's stepping uh, over cracks in the sidewalk, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's, Hey, raising my hand. Like <laughs> that's where, that's where my anxiety expresses itself. Like I was like, Oh, I know what you're doing. I can see that. Uh, today you're stepping over them tomorrow. You're going to try to hit all of them. So yeah. how much, how much time do we have? Should we get into some of our own <laughs> personal anxiety quirks, Josh? I've got a few. And this is what this movie is tapping into. You know, it's yeah. how Kay is living with these things and she's seeking out these other avenues you're talking about with the the woman who's reading the tea leaves and so forth. Um, so that's very much like Eraserhead, which is all about, you know, the anxiety of that main character state. I, you know, I think we've discussed like tied to the, the fear of parenthood and those sorts of things. For Kay, it's a little bit different. Sexuality comes into play. That's something, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, buckle in, get ready for um, a way of tackling in movies sex that I don't know that any other filmmaker does. It's, it's just... I'm hoping to get a firmer handle and maybe that's, maybe we don't have to, maybe there isn't one thing Campion is trying to say about it. Um, but a firmer handle on that as we go through these movies again. Uh, but I will say, going back to your mention of the tree roots, this is in the occasional voiceover. Kay mentions how she's, she has this fear of trees because of their roots, how they get under houses and disrupt things. Mm -hmm. And we get these cuts away to eerie time-lapse footage of seedlings breaking through asphalt. That is a good example of what we will get a lot more of, I know, is sort of a poetic symbolism. Um, you know, the, these ideas, it, it's that's pretty much what the piano is. You know, these I, the ideas, these images that are going to stand in for this whole roy, roiling undercurrent of emotion and psychology. And I think we definitely see, it was really kind of exciting to revisit this and see like, oh yeah, it was right here at the beginning, just kind of Mm -hmm. latching onto some sort of imagery um, that's going to be very symbolic and representative in, in poetic ways. I I don't find them to be obvious or, or, you know, heavy handed ways, but poetic ways that are going to be throughout this movie. And, and, you know, that ties into the imagery too. You, You mentioned it, that I don't think there's an uninteresting frame no. In this film, right? Yeah. Had the same note, right? Like, that's the part of this debut that makes it so impressive, is that... And like why? I even just, I even just wrote in my notes, every shot so far is framed. Yep. And I know that sounds, sounds obvious that every shot in every movie is framed, but it's one where you understand that there has been some some vision put behind it some calculation something that is is setting a tone that's establishing a mood that is just 
allowing you to have a peek into Kay's psyche. And it's there from the very first frame of the movie. I even like the touch. You know, just everything is sort of canted or skewed in a way. She's never in the center of the frame. You know, she's always kind of in the corner. The whole thing just makes you uneasy, I think, by design. And I love the way, as we talk about things that are underneath, that sense of, you know, there's always something you can't see. There's talk of germs or spirits or those tree roots, right? She'll start seeing sometimes by showing the shoes under the table Mm. and their feet moving, which is just such an interesting way to bring you into a scene where it's sort of like focusing on these little character quirks and detail. Well, that's where the truth is. That's where they're revealing themselves under the table. In their their behavior, right? In their their actions, in their their unconscious behavior. Yes. Right? Exactly. So I think that's what's really so much fun, honestly, about this very dark movie is paying a lot of attention to those compositions and seeing how it informs your understanding of the characters. And there is some playfulness, too. I mean, maybe I'm overstating it, Josh. I don't know if you had a similar thought watching it, but my favorite shot in the film, and this is one I'll sort of just, you know, write down as maybe a contender for a campion moment We'll see. We have a lot more Campion moments ahead, and we'll see whether or not this actually feels really true to Campion or maybe more of an aberration. But there's a shot early on after she has now attained Louis. She's dating him. She's stolen him away because it's it's meant to be. And I think Campion just shows a glancing shot of her bedroom where Kay's work outfit her purple dress is hanging up on the curtain and his like work suit is hanging up right next to it and it almost looks like the the arms of the of the outfits are are holding hands Mm. in a way it's it's like there's something actually sweet and romantic about it in this movie that really doesn't have a whole lot of sweetness or romance or really any sensuality i mean going back to what you said about sexuality their relationship is pretty passionless and actually become sexless. So of course there's not much sensuality, but there's just a frankness to the way Campion depicts sex is just like, it is what it is. It's a physical act. She isn't trying to really read too much more into it than that, though I will say as well, and I'll be a little vague about this. I think there's a line at the end of this film where someone says their definition of marriage, and I'm just going to say, or what love is, their definition of love. And Josh, I'm going to put it out there that it's one of the truer things ever uttered in a film. I mean, you don't you don't think we can spoil it? Because no, we can. Spoil I wanted it. to bring I that up. Just want people to go look for it. <laughs> oh, I, okay. When they look for it, I I was just going to say that I think this is the guiding thesis for it stood out for for a this overview. Okay, is going to be okay. those two things um, may not they may not equal what that character says they equal. But they equal Campion films to me, at at least at this point. So I think okay, there you go. See, we're yeah. gonna we're gonna leave in the mystery, Josh. Okay, Let's let people seek out Sweetie and watch the end of the film, and they can figure out the line we're talking about, or maybe they can find a script online. But again, I I just love that that shot. I love the playfulness of it. Yeah. I love that it's about the sweetest thing in the movie, Sweetie, and yet even something about it feels really weird. <laughs> like it's the most intimacy they have together, and their bodies aren't even there. Well, and just real quickly, going back to your your note about sex being mundane and it is what it is, and it's just this physical act. That's absolutely right. So much of the movie 
depicts it that way. But then you also get this sense, and this ties into your idea of these outside forces that are, you know, beyond you controlling things. That's sexuality is also kind of a spiritual force in this movie for good and bad. And it's just kind of in the air. Think about that early moment. So she and Lou are in the parking garage. They've hidden under the car. They're making out because the coworkers, including the now or the being jilted coworker comes down Two women and the one turns to the other. They don't know Kay and Lou are there and just says, you know, I feel sexy. And it's just this, Note that, like, yes, sex is mundane. It's this physical act, but it's also this, as I said, like spiritual force that is is outside of yourself and you might not have any real control over. Yeah, no, that scene definitely stood out to me. That line I even put in my notes, you know, sort of a rhetorical question to myself to think about it for later. Now, why would she feel sexy? Why would she say that in the garage? And then, of course, the movie kind of gives you the answer if it wasn't already apparent to you later in the film when Sweetie is having sex with her boyfriend in their house. Right. And in that moment, Louie becomes very sexually aroused by it. Yeah. And I don't know exactly how we would classify Kay's response, a little more disturbed by it. Maybe she too is disturbed by her own arousal, though she doesn't have maybe the the same sort of visceral, obvious reaction to it that Louie does. But they are both startled by it something stirs inside them and it's similar in that parking garage they don't know that they're under that car making out with each other but just being close to it they still sunset have this power yeah yeah so you mentioned um the the purple uh uniform she wears for work i think it's at a bank um that's also in that opening shot you referenced, you know, the first thing we see that stood out to me too is Kay's nylon legs. It's it's from above, another interesting yep. angle. Yep. Um, and that purple skirt, which is kind of clashing with the natural floral pattern of her carpeting. So it's mm-hmm. it's the the first thing you see is striking um and just a little bit at odds. There's something at odds there, which is, you know, a perfect entry into this strange story we're going to going to discover. Maybe we won't spoil it, but we were talking about are conflicted feelings towards Sweetie, the same kind of conflicted feelings her family has for her. And that that end moment is is something I don't think we equate Campion much with sentimentality or going for, you know, kind of tugging at the heartstrings. And I, I don't know that I felt that. Mm. What I felt was something, you know, a little more nuanced and a little more complicated, which is, I mean... Look, I I didn't necessarily plan to get into this, but I'll just mention briefly, like, as you know, we, we put our dog down just two nights ago. Yeah. 17 years Ellie had been with us. You also know this, having known me for nine years, that I've almost never said something nice about Ellie. <laughs> <laughs> like we're we're baby people, not dog people, but we're baby people who own a dog and have owned the same dog for 17 years. And we we didn't say nice things about her because she was mostly being annoying. She was mostly kind of a nuisance. Yes, there's the normal ones like, oh man, you gotta you gotta take her somewhere when you're going out of town and things like that. But also over the past four or five years before she had any health problems, even she started peeing all over the place. And it really just it changed our whole house. Had to put up gates and and pads on the floor and all these things. And and we complained about it a lot. And and then we have the moment where you take this this animal that's been with you for 17 years that feels as much like a part of the family to us as Sweetie obviously felt to this family. And and you have to say goodbye to her. 
And, you know, you come home like a day like today and I walk in to our mud room to get something and that's where she would normally be. Sure, laying. sure. She'd normally be yep. laying right there. And and in that moment, you completely miss yeah. the fact that that her her body, her presence isn't isn't there in the room. And and I feel like and you mentioned it earlier, I had the similar thought today. It's not what made me think of of Ellie. It was overall sweetie and everything about her character. But as you said, she she barks like a dog at different points, right? So yeah. the story maybe is fairly fitting, but I take all of those angry feelings I've ever had for her. And all I remember really in the finality of it is the, the presence that I recall, the presence that I, I remember her as, you know, and I, I romanticize that a little bit and we get in a moment at the end, something that I think, well, it, it felt, even though I watched this movie the day before it, it felt like I was living in my own life, something I just saw, you know, depicted in art. It, it was being imitated in my in my real life. And I think that the point there, Josh, the larger point, is not that I have an anecdote to share. It's that Campion is fundamentally getting at something truthful, something human that we can all relate to. And I think, no, I think what it's tapping into, this goes back to Kay's anxiety and we're talking around it, but we're kind of spoiling it. I mean, she finds herself in a similarly conflicted and anxious place as you might be right now, which is sadness and relief. Um, and, and it's magnified of course for her because this is, you know, a sister, um, she's talking about, but yeah, I think, and I think, you know, putting in that context makes me appreciate the ending a little bit more. I felt, you know, this time it was a little much like it, it, it suddenly became, it was sort of a, an ultra dramatic gesture in a movie that, um, you know, had otherwise kind of cat catalog things a little more subtly, um, mm -hmm. or at least in its own way. It's not a subtle right. movie, but it's in its own unique way. And this seemed like how most people would end this movie. Let me put it that way. Um, but thinking about it after just hearing you talk about that, I see how it does shed a new light on Kay's um, psyche and how she's going to have to process this, which, as I said, is what I think the movie is really about, is, is how Kay is learning to live in the world as a woman with this sister, with those parents who has a shot at being healthy. Um, but somehow can't quite find her way to that place while these people are still, still have their claws in her. Mm. Yeah. The best line in this movie, other than the line we've been dancing around about what love is, is when Kay says something like, I didn't write it down. I apologize. But she says something like, she just showed up. Yep. That's it. Here, is that the line? Yeah. You want to hear it? She was, yeah. she was just born. She was just, born. I don't have anything to do with her. It's I don't so have great. anything to do with her, right? This <laughs> so idea, great. <laughs> you know, it is what Criterion was alluding to with that line that nobody chooses their family. But man, what a way to frame that. Yeah. To, to frame that idea. If you've ever had, again, talking about real things, if you've ever had any animosity with any one of your siblings or you've ever struggled or you've ever felt like, how could we even be related? This doesn't make any sense. Describing it that way, it does just speak to something that's more primal yeah. and something that's deeper that is driving Kay's own kind of madness. That the way she sees it, it's like, 
why should I be burdened my whole life with her? Yeah. I didn't have any part in this. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, and, and it's, it's such a good line. And it's a good example of the humor too. And this is probably where we should point out that Campion co-wrote the screenplay actually with Gerard Lee. So who, you know, who knows where that line came from, but th- this was a, a project that she had a co-writer for. So, yeah. And not to go for easy personal readings, but doesn't the movie end with a dedication? Oh my gosh. That my might sister? be. Yeah. I mean, is that like the darkest joke in the film? The last thing you see for my sister. (laughs) Well, Sweetie is a great start to this overview. It's currently available on the Criterion channel and for digital rental. Next week, we'll get to 1990s An Angel at My Table. That's also on the Criterion channel. And we do encourage you to check out filmspotting.net slash campion for our full lineup and where to watch these movies. Josh, that's our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at Filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll on the website. We're asking who should be the next James Bond. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit Filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at Filmspotting.net slash newsletter out in wide release this weekend, Dear Evan Hansen. And next week on our show, we'll talk about Titan, the Cannes Palm d'Or winner this year, in addition to the second film in our Campion series. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.